0: Hello, and welcome to the Chest Journal podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHEST, I'd like to welcome you to this month's CHEST podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the moderator of the CHEST podcast section. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a really interesting conversation on venous thromboembolism and bleeding among hospitalized patients with COVID-19. Today, we are very fortunate to have Drs. Jimenez and Dr. Moores as our guests. We'll be discussing the recent publication in CHEST entitled, Incidence of Venous Thromboembolism and, da- and Bleeding Among Hospitalized Patients with COVID-19, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis, and the accompanying editorial uh, by Dr. Morris. So we're going to go ahead and get our guests to introduce themselves. Uh, first, David.
1: Uh, thank you very much. My name is David Jimenez. I'm a respiratory physician at Ramon H- Cajal Hospital in Madrid, Spain.
0: Great. Thanks for joining us. And Lisa?
2: Good morning. Thank you for having me. My name is Lisa Moores. I am currently the Associate Dean for Assessment at the Military Medical School in Washington, D.C. I am also a pulmonary and critical care physician by training.
0: Great. Um, It's a pleasure to have both of you on this really important topic that has gripped uh, the world's attention. So, uh, Lisa, maybe you could kick us off. Why is venous thromboembolism and bleeding um, among hospitalized patients with COVID-19 so important?
2: Well, thank you for the question. And I um, it certainly is quite a controversial area that has popped up uh, since the pandemic began. And I think if you look back, we certainly, we have known for many, many years that hospitalized patients, particularly with uh, acute inflammatory or infectious disorders, particularly those that are more severely ill and in the ICU for their care, are at an increased risk of hospital-associated venous thromboembolism, but early in the pandemic, the initial reports, although they were uh, varied in their quality, all retrospective, varying amounts of uh, the number of patients and their care setting, the incidence of venous thromboembolism in those patients appeared to be much higher than what we were used to seeing in typical hospitalized uh, medically ill so, some very early reports that patients who were uh, who were receiving anticoagulation uh, had a lower mortality. And as we started to learn more and more about the pathophysiology of COVID-19, it was very obvious that although we don't understand every piece of it yet, and uh, uh, certainly don't understand all the nuances between from patient to patient. It really is sort of the, the optimal environment. Uh, these patients are have exhibit all three prongs, if you if you will, <clears throat> excuse me, of Virchow's triad. Um, and we know that the virus itself causes significant uh, endothelial injury and inflammation, and that that then initiates a a procoagulant state, a hypo uh, state. We know these patients are, uh, significantly sedentary, oftentimes for prolonged periods, even before they come into the hospital. But then, uh, while they're hospitalized, we, we limit their movement more. And if they're in the ICU, they're, they're often, uh, immobilized, may even be in a prone position for prolonged periods of time. Uh, and we also know that they, um, you know, have a lot of other comorbid, uh, issues going on, a lot of other organ damage. So there is, just the environment is set up for them to be at risk for thrombosis.
0: And then the relevance of the bleeding amongst those with uh, COVID-19, how does that play into uh, the concerns amongst the pandemic?
2: Well, I think, you know, there's there's a similar concern that there's a, a an alteration in uh, platelets, uh, both production, consumption, in uh, the balance between clotting and bleeding. I think interestingly, at least to me, and I would love, uh, you know, David's opinion on this, but early on, there really were no reports that mentioned the bleeding. In fact, when we did our initial version of the uh, COVID-19 guidelines for uh, prevention and diagnosis of VTE, and we looked at all of the studies that were uh, had been shared at that point, there was only one study that even made a small comment about the rate of bleeding in these patients. They were all focused on on the on the clotting, um, and so I think you know our group in particular had some concern that that yes, they may be at increased risk for for thrombosis, but they were likely at increased risk of bleeding, and we didn't know much about that um, and so had some concerns about the sort of what seemed to be the automatic jump to higher intensity dosing uh, for thromboprophylaxis. Um, and since that time, we are now seeing more reports that have indeed suggested that these patients are at an increased risk of bleeding. So understanding the risk benefit, if you will, or the balance between preventing thrombosis and causing harm is a little bit more clear, although um, I would say even the, the newer randomized trials that we are starting to see um, have some inconsistencies in that too. I think we need to try to understand which group of patients is going to benefit most from increased intensity prophylaxis and which of them uh, we may need to cause uh, significant bleeding.
0: David, let me pull you in now. Um, so, with, with that in mind, why did you go ahead and study uh, the incidence of venous thromboembolism and bleeding in COVID nineteen patients?
1: Well, I, I absolutely agree with with Lisa's comments, uh, and there were two additional reasons why we decided to to perform this systematic review and meta analysis uh, in the in the thrombotic arena. Uh, it was very interesting that uh, we we learned from the very beginning that the the risk of venous thromboembolism was increased among patients with COVID-19, but reports in the literature were very heterogeneous uh, regarding the the estimates of uh, incidence of VTE, ranging from uh, 5% to as high as 85%. Uh, so uh, this is one of the reasons why we decided to to perform this this study, and and uh, regarding the, the bleeding uh, problem, uh, uh, we thought that it was very important to to assess the the estimate of major bleeding among these patients particularly because some experts and some local protocols advocated from the very beginning the use of intermediate or even full-dose anticoagulation. So before implementing these, these recommendations, it was very important to have an accurate estimate of the incidence of bleeding among patients with coronavirus pneumonia.
0: Yeah, the early part of the pandemic, we definitely saw a lot of uh, publications that um, caused concern amongst love clinicians, and at times it felt like it was the wild, wild west where people were uh, initiating therapies with very little evidence. So let's dive into that, David. So let's discuss your study methods and how they address the limitations that you saw in the available literature, and then we'll go through your findings. David?
1: Yeah. Well, we, we try to follow all the, all the scientific recommendations uh, for performing a systematic review and meta-analysis. Thus, we first prepared the, the systematic review protocol and submitted for registration on PROSPERO. Uh, number two, we, we follow the reporting checklist for meta-analysis of observational studies. Number three, uh, we perform a a very exhaustive uh, search in the literature uh, and uh, uh, using as many platforms as possible, Medline, PubMed, EnBase, CINAHL, Cochrane Library, COVID-19 Open Research Dataset, Challenge, COVID-19 Research Database. Epistemonikos, uh, EPPI, center Living Systematic Map of the Evidence. Uh, we searched uh, preprint servers and coronavirus resource centers uh, of New England Journal of Medicine, Lancet, and, and JAMA. Four, we used a very sensitive strategy for our search, not to miss any, any of, of the published studies. Uh, number five, uh, two independent researchers performed the screening and data extraction, and disagreements were resolved by discussion uh, within the team. Number six, uh, we clearly define we have priority defined outcomes for, for this particular study. And uh, number seven, we pre specify different subgroup analysis. Uh, Uh, according to the VT type, uh, incidence according to the setting, uh, meaning war versus ICU, type of assessment for VTE, screening versus clinical diagnosis, intensity of pharmacological thromboprophylaxis, and geographical area. Uh, Of course, we were very interested in uh, analyzing the incidence of uh, macrothrombosis, I mean pulmonary embolism DBA thrombosis, and for this reason, we excluded uh, those patients with isolated sacramental pulmonary embolism and catheter-associated thrombosis, and in addition, we finally uh, performed a different pre-specified sensitive analysis.
0: So this was a well-planned systematic review and meta-analysis. So let's jump into your findings. Um, So I'll get David to give us your primary findings and uh, what your interpretation of them were.
1: Well, the the overall incidence of venous thromboembolism, uh, we found a 17% overall incidence, and the overall incidence of bleeding was 7.8%. In my opinion, it was very interesting to find very different incidences Uh, according to the subgroups that were analyzed. Uh, And we found that the incidence of VT was significantly higher uh, for those populations uh, uh, who received systematic screening for venous thromboembolism as compared to those patients who received diagnosis according to the clinical symptoms and signs. It was significantly higher uh, among critically ill patients compared to ward patients. We found a higher incidence of venous thromboembolism in prospective studies as compared to retrospective studies, and the incidence of VTE significantly decreased when we excluded microthrombosis and we only assessed deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary embolism. And uh, for bleeding, uh, I think that uh, it is very important to highlight that we found a significantly increased risk of bleeding and major bleeding for those patients who receive intermediate or full-dose anticoagulation as compared to those patients hospitalized with COVID-19 who receive a standard-dose thromboprophylaxis.
0: And how did you interpret those findings, David?
1: well uh i i i have to say that uh, so far this this uh, hypothesis generated study uh, uh and uh, according to these results uh i think that uh they are important in order to inform the design uh, of randomized control trials and uh, to inform calculation of sample sizes of randomized control trials uh overall uh My opinion is that uh, patients with COVID-19 who are hospitalized uh, have an increased risk of venous thromboembolism and might have an increased risk for bleeding, uh, but uh, we can only uh, take decisions or change the usual recommendations of clinical practice guidelines for non-COVID-19 patients after the design uh, and publication of randomized controlled trials.
0: Lisa, I want to pull you in because these are very interesting findings. Uh, how did you interpret them, and which uh, findings uh, were you struck by? Uh,
2: I, I have to um, really compliment first David on uh, and his co-authors. I agree with uh, you that this is a very well done, well designed uh, systematic review, and, it, and has a you know a robust statistical approach. Um, so it was really it was really a, pl- a pleasure to read through. Um, I was really struck by the findings, and and David is being his usual and, I think, appropriate um, caution, uh, cautionary self, uh, humble self. Uh, He will not overstate findings of any of his studies, and I would want to be careful with that, too, but I really was struck by this emerging theme that I have seen trying to stay up with this literature. I will admit that I'm not sure I'm being successful, but Really starting to notice that, um, as David said, when you exclude isolated DVT, catheter-associated DVT, isolated subsegmental PE, um, you know the rate of macrothrombosis, if you will, um, is maybe higher, but not as much higher as we thought, and maybe not all that different um, than than what we see in non hospitalized patients, but when you obviously you add in the immunothrombosis, which we can't ignore, then the rates are significantly higher, um, but I have, you know, when I look at that, I sort of question, well, what's the right approach to that? When we look at other disease states that have significant uh, rates of immunothrombosis, we really don't have any literature to date to say that using heparins or uh, other anticoagulants Is effective and and may actually even be harmful. And so the the question is how much of this should we focus on trying to deal with the uh, coagulation with chemical thromboprophylaxis versus what can we learn and do? I like to say more upstream about uh, stopping that inflammatory cascade before it leads to this high level of immunothrombosis. So, you know, better antivirals, which I think we haven't really focused enough on. Um, are there other immunomodulating agents that might help us in this fight that wouldn't necessarily carry the higher risk of bleeding? Because as David noted, another Really important message that I saw from their study was that the rate of VTE appeared to be fairly consistent across cohorts, regardless of the dose of anticoagulation that they received. And yet, as he noted, the rate of bleeding significantly increases with intermediate or full dose anticoagulation. Um, so I don't, I don't know the right approach yet. I agree with David that. Uh, We need to have very well designed randomized controlled trials looking at either intermediate and full dose, looking at the effectiveness and, uh, the, the safety. I'm curious because many of these patients with our newer guidelines will be receiving, uh, remdesivir, will be receiving dexamethasone, uh, and, and how that might affect the rates, um, and how we control for that because, um, uh, I think it's an important part of the puzzle that we're trying trying to solve. The other interesting finding to me was uh, David's group, as he mentioned, um, also pre-planned uh, an additional statistical approach using an inverse variance fixed effects model. And when they did that, uh, again, just hypothesis generating, but the rate of VTE was lower. It was only 4.8%, but the rate of bleeding was almost 10%. So, again, bringing into question this practice of automatically increasing the intensity of thromboprophylaxis
1: in these patients.
0: David, what's your response to Lisa's comments?
1: Uh, I, I completely agree with her. Uh, uh, it is not only uh, those randomized clinical trials that are assessing the efficacy and safety of intermediate or full-dose anticoagulation regimens, but there are some uh, randomized control trials that are also uh, testing anti-inflammatory drugs uh, in order to assess if these drugs are associated with a significant re- reduction of these microthrombosis or immunothrombosis without increasing the risk of, of bleeding.
0: I want to uh, come back to this comment about um, uh, that you made that uh, the, the rate of VTE was higher in prospective studies, more in ICU patients. Um, is it possible that we just haven't been looking enough for uh, the venous thromboembolism in ICU patients because COVID-19 seems to have a sepsis picture. It also has an ARDS picture. Maybe this is the typical inflammatory response causing a pro- uh, procoagulant state in sepsis and ARDS. Um, uh, Lisa, what do you think about that?
2: That's a, that's a great question, and I haven't, you know, spent as much time going back through some of the original um, arts and other sepsis studies. I'm, I, I am absolutely certain that David has those numbers in his head because he's so good at that, but I, I don't think that's the only issue. Um I just I don't want to overspeak without knowing those exact numbers. I do recall early on asking that question of myself uh, and and trying to look at those numbers, but I think that what we're seeing is part of the true nature of COVID nineteen in that it's attacking the endothelium and and seeing that diffuse endothelial injury even outside of the pulmonary vasculature, um, which is is somewhat different than what you see in in certainly other forms of sepsis and and ARDS. And knowing that you're seeing similar pathology if you are to look at some of the other organ systems. And I think the original trial may have come out of NYU looking at those autopsy studies, but this is not isolated to the lungs. Uh, And it just appears If I were to guess, it's just my opinion. I I think there's something more here than just us looking more. Uh, But I would love David's thought on that, because I think he's got the numbers in his head a little better than I do.
0: Great. David? David?
1: Yeah, it is not so easy as Lisa said to put in context these these results, uh, or at least to to compare these incidences uh, to other uh, diseases uh, that we were attending before the the pandemic. Uh, I mean, other infections or even patients with cancer. I can tell you that at least in in my hospital. Uh, At the beginning of the pandemia, uh, uh, just few of the patients received a CT scan for for the disease. Uh, So they they just got a CT scan if there was a clinical suspicion of pulmonary embolism. But soon after uh, uh, the publication of of the first report showing a high incidence of venous thromboembolism, then uh, emergency department physicians decided to to scan every patient with COVID-19 admitted to the hospital. So uh, uh, I, I wonder if we scan every cancer patient in our emergency department or every patient with pneumococcal pneumonia, uh, we might get these high incidences of venous thromboembolism. So uh, I think it is fair to say that uh, the incidence of microthrombosis is high in patients with, with COVID-19 who are hospitalized. And we still don't know, and uh, I, I don't know if Lisa agrees with uh, with this. Uh, if this incidence is higher as compared to other uh, diseases that are associated with a, a an hypercoagulable state.
2: No, I, I do agree with you, David. I, I I don't know. It's um it's fascinating to me to as we learn more and more about. Uh, this virus, um, and, I, you know, I think you could liken it to if, if you were, if you were, say, many hospitals like yours decided to start doing CT scans on every hospitalized patient with COVID-19 pneumonia, then, uh, you know, I certainly would just liken that to screening. And as your study showed, the rates were much higher if uh, you included a screening population, and we don't do that routinely. Not, you know, not only in cancer patients, as you said, but other uh, critically ill patients. We we scan them when we have a clinical suspicion. So it it could play a role. Uh, I just don't know that it accounts enough for what we're seeing in these patients.
1: Uh, I think that will. Uh, Yeah, we lack many data to adequately uh, interpret this this data. Uh, And the reason is that, and I think we will touch uh, this point in in the podcast, uh, that the the first results that are appearing uh, from the randomized controlled trials evaluating the efficacy and safety of intermediate dose thromboprophylaxis or full anticoagulation are counterintuitive. Uh, as compared to the results that we were getting in the in the epidemiological studies. Uh,
2: I'm and very excited to see that actual data.
0: <laughs> I, I want to turn our attention to something a little bit different about what's bleeding because, uh, Lisa, from you, uh, your comments and, and David as well, it sounds like uh, there seems to be more thrombosis occurring in these COVID-19 patients uh, due to endothelial dysfunction. So, my question is, given the fact that randomized data takes such a long time to get out um, in terms of recruiting patients, analyzing, reporting the findings, how do we go about addressing this issue of increased thrombosis? I mean, clinicians want to take care of their individual patients, and they want to decrease the risk of forming blood clots, which could kill patients with the pulmonary emboli. Why would we not Um, go ahead and give a higher dose of uh, anticoagulation with the hope of decreasing uh, rates of VTE? Lisa? Well,
2: perhaps I'm taking a very conservative approach. That that is generally um, my, uh, if you want to call it that. But when I first started looking at all of these reports and we as a group started to talk about how we might respond to this, I, I certainly understand the, the not 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 the need but the desire to do something to help our patients that's that's why we're here uh, but I am a real uh, believer in evidence based medicine, and we have established evidence based guidelines regarding thromboprophylaxis in hospitalized patients and in Patients who are uh, in the ICU, and I really felt very strongly that in order to change our practice from a well, you know, well done evidence-based uh, recommendation with a fairly high uh, certainty level of evidence, I would need to see enough information to say that these patients truly are different enough. So. I would want to know that it is going to be more efficacious um, and also, of course, that it is safe. And at least in our guideline, and as David mentioned, there are many hospitals that develop protocols that do use either intermediate or full dose anticoagulation. There are not any guidelines that recommend that. And I find that fascinating. No matter which society you went to early on, we were all consistent in saying that you should All patients with COVID-19 are hospitalized, should receive thromboprophylaxis. But there were only one or two that said, well, you could consider higher dose. None of them recommended that. Certainly no one recommended full-dose anticoagulation. And and yet it's being done um, by some of the authors of some of these guidelines. Um, So I do think, you know, you're you're correct, Dr. Pepper, that they are are feeling this, um, you know, I guess this... kind of helplessness of not having anything to offer and wanting to offer something. But sometimes best thing we can do for our patients is to do no harm uh, and, and to continue with the high quality of care that we already give them. Uh, and I think if you look from the beginning of the pandemic until now, certainly outcomes are improving. We're learning a lot about the, the virus. Is that because we're, Increasing the intensity of anticoagulation, I I don't think so, Uh, but I want higher-level evidence before I stray from published guidelines.
0: I definitely agree with that. Um, And, uh, David, you mentioned the importance of identifying subgroups of benefit. Um, In the work that you did with the systematic review and meta-analysis, or even in uh, other literature that you've uh, studied... Um, Are there any subgroups emerging um, in the COVID-19 patients where we could target um, uh, uh, some sort of uh, um, anticoagulation strategy or uh, monitor for venous thromboembolism a whole lot better?
1: Well, I I think that uh, we were pretty confident on our systematic review and meta-analysis tended to confirm that, that. Critically ill patients with COVID-19 were a special subgroup of patients who might receive diff- different uh, treatment approach uh, as compared to, to patients hospitalized in the, in the world. Um, however, the results that were released from big from clinical trials uh, do not confirm uh, these, these common findings uh, from the beginning of, of the, of the pandemic. Uh, and uh, there are some pace, some some groups uh, that uh, advocated the, the, the use of uh, different regimens of thromboprophylaxis or even full dose anticoagulation acc- according to uh, certain specific biomarkers such as D dimer or uh, inflammatory parameters. Uh, but so far, uh, I'm not aware of any study that uh, have confirmed. Uh, in a prospective manner, this uh, this uh, suggestion.
0: So I want to go into that a bit deeper because it seems as though during the initial parts of the pandemic, um, those who had the loudest voices and sometimes those who came up with so-called novel solutions got a lot of airtime, whether it was in social media or uh, in the literature. Um, And from what you're telling me, it seems as though a year on, uh, whether it's regarding anticoagulation or uh, in terms of ARDS, um, the take-home message seems to be consistently that we should just have kept on doing what we were doing previously. Um, Lisa, how would you respond to that, and how would you caution people in the future um, if this were to happen again?
2: Great question, because it's I think we're seeing it certainly in, in all walks of life outside of the medical profession, uh, um, the power of uh, social media and the media and with the pandemic being able to put Studies up there in preprint that had not undergone peer review that were fully uh, accessible, having every journal out there make their content regarding COVID uh, accessible, freely accessible, which none of which I disagree with. But then there is this certainly um, an, an overwhelming amount of data coming at clinicians that's difficult to sort through, and many I think. Uh, looked to the professional societies and the leaders in those societies, the authors of the guidelines, uh, to to give them some advice to help them sort through all of this information that was being produced. And the phenomena that I just don't quite understand, and maybe it's just for the sake of being provocative, maybe it's uh, to, to promote those studies, to ask those questions, to challenge the status quo, I always assume good intent in people, uh, particularly physicians. So, uh, you know, I don't think there was any agenda here, uh, for personal notoriety. It, it was just, it was just, you know, confusing to me to try to understand how the, Guidelines would say one thing, and authors of those guidelines, in either webinars or in discussing the protocols in their own hospitals, were doing something different than that. So that's I, a very it, interesting I think phenomenon. That, yeah, it is, and I, I like I said, I assume good intent. So perhaps it is just that, like David and I have some some theories that those are theories they felt strongly about, and by discussing them in open forum, we can. Um, have a debate, we can design the studies, we can try to answer the question. I, I, that's the only thing I can come up with.
0: So, David, um, you have obviously gone along the scientific route and uh, decided to uh, perform a well-done systematic review to answer those questions. Um, it's obviously labor intensive, uh, but it gets to the answer. Um, uh, what would what your response be?
1: Uh, yeah. I agree with Lisa, and I, I think uh, uh, to, to manage these patients, uh, we need first a starting point. And in my opinion, the starting point is uh, uh, previous guidelines for non-COVID-19 patients, because these guidelines are based on decades of research in anticoagulation and in the treatment of infectious um, lung infectious disease. And number two, uh, there is one thing that I think that we should learn from from uh, 2020 uh, when managing uh, these patients is that most of the observational data that uh, made us to treat these patients with clopidine, uh, with azithromycin, with uh, lopinavir were not confirmed in well-designed randomized controlled trials. So for this reason. I think that it is uh, very wise uh, to uh, stick to the to previous guidelines and only to, uh, to make uh, important changes in these guidelines uh, according to the data generated for, from uh, randomized controlled trials.
0: Yeah, I think both of you have given us a very sobering
1: account of uh, the, 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 this topic, and I really
0: appreciate that. Um, David, I want to jump into the limitations of your study. If you could just... Um, there is no perfect study. Um, and what were the limitations in the study that you performed, and what should our audience be aware of?
1: Well, uh, the study had uh, many limitations. Uh, first one, this was uh, a pool made meta-analysis, not an individual patient data meta-analysis. So uh, we could not adjust for confounders, number one, and uh, we we couldn't decrease heterogeneity uh, among the studies that were identified in the systematic review. Of course, that one of the limitations of, of this meta-analysis uh, is driven by limitations of original studies uh, with missing data, with lack of independent adjudication, so on. Um, uh, uh, in retrospective, I, I think that the, in the meta-analysis uh, ha, might have been better uh, if we had assessed all-cause mortality, not only the incidence of BTE and bleeding, but the consequences of BTE events and bleeding events uh, on mortality. And, and finally, uh, we were able to find a, a high statistical heterogeneity. Uh, well, it, it is not a limitation per se of the of the meta-analysis. But uh, it makes uh, us uh, be very cautious uh, when in, uh, interpreting the the results. And Lisa, yeah,
2: I don't, I don't have much to add beyond what David has mentioned. I thought the authors were very <clears throat> um, honest and complete in noting really? all the limitations. And and as I reviewed it and as I tried to put it into context for readers of the journal. I did make a note that yes that the mainly the limitations in this study come from the nature of the primary literature uh and and it's it's as as we noted earlier in our discussion there is a lot of it that was put out there in print very early on with limited or no peer review uh and it it, it the the quality of the reports varies significantly that said Putting all that together still gives us as clinicians a much clearer picture of how to interpret the data that we do have. Even within those limitations, we need to see those, and as David said, to help us with those uh, randomized trials. Are we doing the right trials based on this? Um, Are there further hypotheses that we are um, suggesting from our interpretation of this meta-analysis that would guide... The, you know, either ongoing or future studies to really answer these questions. Um, So I I find the studies still very, very helpful. I suppose maybe in a, you know, what's what's the word I want? Uh, I may be showing my own bias, but I think it's nice to look at this data and say, at least so far, there's not, this is me that what we're proposing, at least from the CHESS guidelines, um, is not correct at this point. Um, it feels like what we put out there even early on to this point is still appropriate. As we start to see the actual data from these prospective trials, we plan to relook at that and, and certainly would be more than happy to change the recommendations if the data suggests we should do so.
0: I definitely agree. That is very well-designed, well-executed, and an honest, uh, systematic review um, that gives us a great platform for guidelines and future RCTs. Um, Lisa and David, I want to be mindful of your time, um, so I'm going to draw this uh, podcast to a close. I do want to give each of you the opportunity to share any uh, last thoughts with our audience or anything that you prepared for the podcast that you haven't had the opportunity to share. Um, Lisa, I'll start with you, and then I'll give David the final word. Lisa?
2: No, no, nothing that we didn't discuss other than um, we, we touched on. I want to make sure that the, the listeners um, don't think I'm um, ignoring or underestimating the degree of uncertainty that we're all facing. Um, and it's, it, it is very tempting to, to, to do something. Um, but with the limited data we have, I would really implore our our listeners to stick to the standard of care. We've got more data coming, and we'll try to use that to the best of our ability to, to help guide their care.
0: Those are very wise words. Uh, David?
1: Uh, my final words might be that uh, I would suggest to stick to, to the guidelines, to stick to what we know in the management of uh, venous thromboembolism in our patients. Uh, and uh, please stay tuned because we are going to, to see uh, uh, results from randomized controlled trials assessing the efficacy and safety of different approaches for, for the management of these patients.
0: I think that's a great way to end the podcast. I appreciate you both for bringing a very calm and steady approach uh, to a very uncertain uh, time um, and a topic that's so very important to our audience. A very big thank you uh, to Dr. Jimenez and Dr. Moores for a great conversation and a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper and this is a Chess Podcast.